Can the simple misspelling of your own company's name turn a simple contract award protest into a full-blown court case? Well, we're talking federal contracting, so of course it can. Here with the strange case of the added two letters, Smith Pactor McWhorter procurement attorney Joseph Petrillo. Joe, this case almost seems absurd, and yet it tied up several agency, several company, and several judiciary branch officials for months. Well, that's right. I mean, we're used to, in government contracting, small errors like that being fatal. I mean, if you file your documents in court or in uh, bid protest a little bit late, you're out of the running. You can't protest. And that's even true, of course, in the proposal submission process. If your proposal is due late with a few very narrow exceptions, it's not going to be considered. So something like that is what happened here, but it had a different result. This case arose from an acquisition by FEMA of architect engineering services to support its insurance program. It was a small business set aside. And since it was a procurement of architect engineering services, it by law was conducted with a kind of unique process, two-phase process. In the first phase, offer or submit unpriced technical proposals. And then in phase two, the most highly rated offeror submits a price proposal. If its price is fair and reasonable, after negotiation, it gets the award. Yeah, so FEMA was asking first for the technical proposals without prices. And then the ones they liked the best, then they would go to those contractors and say, all right, well, how much for this? Well, it's even more restrictive than that. It's just the one most highly rated offeror is invited to submit a price proposal. If that price isn't fair and reasonable, then they go to the next in line, etc. So that's the mechanism used in those procurements. And the company involved here, Focus Revision Partners, or we'll call FRP, submitted a proposal, but it wasn't selected for phase two. Later on, after FEMA had made its award decision, Focus Revision Partners learned, FRP learned, that the award went to a company called NWINT Atkins, JV. They decided that they were going to file a size protest. They thought uh, this company didn't qualify as small under SBA's rules for mentor-protege programs. So FRP protested on the winning company's size grounds. Exactly. When it submitted its protest, however, FRP made a mistake. They called themselves Focus Revision Partners JV, LLC. So they added this JV, LLC at the end. And that was a mistake. There is no such entity. Junior Varsity, LLC. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> In this case, yes. The CO forwarded the protest to the SBA regional office, notwithstanding that mistake. And the SBA regional office looked at the merits and ruled against FRP. So FRP then appealed to the Office of Hearings and Appeals at SBA. Those who lose in the regional office level can go up to OHA. So during the appeal, the awardee noticed the error in FRP's name. The winning and company noticed that. Exactly. And they filed a motion to dismiss, saying, look, this company doesn't exist. They can't uh, submit a protest. So they were saying, in effect, that the protest came not from FRP, the original one that did not win, but from a non-entity called FRP JV LLC. Exactly. Now, FRP opposed the motion and moved to amend its protest to correct the error in its name. Little whiteout over the JV LLC, basically. Apparently, yeah. And, and the rules of the Office of Hearings and Appeals allow a party to amend its pleadings so long as no other party is prejudiced and it doesn't unreasonably delay the 
hearing of the appeal. SBA's OHA wasn't having any of that, though. They dismissed the appeal. They ruled, first of all, that this FRP JV comma LLC doesn't exist, so it doesn't have standing to file either a size protest or an appeal of a size protest. Yeah, this is really getting and into catch-22 territory. Exactly, because the second part of it is because it lacks standing, it can't amend the appeal to correct the error. So you you, you can't file the protest and you can't fix your mistake. Catch-22. So FRP was still not satisfied. It wants it to stay in court, as it were. So it filed suit in the Court of Federal Claims. And the case was uh, heard and decided by Judge Solomson, who wasn't impressed with the SBA's ruling, he, reasoning rather. He found it circular. First of all, he said, look, no one was actually confused by the error. Uh, CO forwarded the size protest to SBA. SBA decided it. Everyone knew who was the party who had submitted uh, the offer and who was protesting the award, which we lawyers call the real party in interest, right? The judge noted that the question should be, well, could FRP amend its filing to correct the error? And the OHA rules even permit that. He then reviewed, this is a very long and uh, well-researched opinion, he reviewed an extensive body of case law about this type of mistake, which has a unique name in the law. It's called a misnomer. And he deduced from that that harmless clerical errors should not doom an otherwise proper filing, exalting form over substance. So at the end of the day, he ruled in favor of FRP in a 44-page opinion and remanded the matter to OHA, which must now permit FRP to correct its erroneous filing. Then OHA has to go ahead and rule on the merits of the appeal. Right. And at this point, it's too soon to say whether the merits, that is the winning bidder, doesn't qualify for set aside under small business rules, that we don't even know yet. Exactly. All this does is set up the ability of FRP to get another ruling on its size protest. And how long did this all take between the 44-page ruling back to the original filing of the protest with the extra letters added on? I think from the time offers were submitted, it's been a year since offers were submitted. This has gone on for a while now, unfortunately. And all this time, FEMA's kind of just not able to get the services that it hoped to acquire? Well, I'm assuming that there's an incumbent contractor and their contract has been extended. That's usually what happens in these instances. It's not laid out in this decision, but that would be what I would expect to have happened. I also want to note that irony, as pointed out by the judge in his decision, the Office of Hearings and Appeals, when it ruled on the appeal, left the comma out of Focus Revision (laughs) Partners' JB, LLC. So they made a typo, too. Wow. Yes. Well, just standards are dropping everywhere you look, I guess, these days. <laughs> Joe Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. Thanks so much for that. We won't call you Petrilovich. We'll just keep Petrillo, not adding anything to the name there. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Cam- 
Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there. 
was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, 
federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.